Last week we talked about the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sin. And one of the things that we said about sin was that sin is the world's greatest problem. And so the question becomes, if sin is the world's greatest problem, then what is the solution? What is the answer to our guilt and our shame? And what we find is that everyone has an answer to that question in society, in the world. Everyone is trying to answer the question, what do I do with my guilt? And everyone answers it differently. If we look out at the world, we see a world that is awash in guilt. And that everyone is trying to deal with it. And this has been true from the beginning. From the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve in the garden had sinned. And what did they do immediately after they sinned? But they cover themselves in fig leaves to try to hide their nakedness, hide their guilt, hide their shame. And when confronted about it, what does Adam do? Well, it was this woman that you gave me. He blames shifts. And men have been doing it ever since. <laughs> he points the finger away from himself. Today, we see the very same thing. In a world that is awash in guilt, everyone is trying to point the finger away from themselves. Because we don't know how else to get rid of the guilt. Here are a couple observations of how the world tries to get rid of guilt. One of the things we have all seen, whether it be in books and blogs, articles, YouTube videos, TikTok videos, your own personal social media posts, we're all seen and probably been guilty of this, is that we post things or see things about telling us, man, you're doing a great job. I know how hard it is. I know it's so hard everyone else is judging you, but you got to stop beating yourself up. you got to be you. You are great. Sometimes we feel the guilt of failure, the guilt of that we're not doing enough in some aspect of our life. Maybe that's our parenting or some relationship we have or our work or something else. And the way we feel that we can expunge the guilt from our failures is through this kind of self-help power of positive thinking. Through the encouragement of others who just try to ignore the problem, ignore the issue, ignore the guilt, and say, you know what, you're doing great. You're doing the best you can. You just got to keep trying. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. You're awesome. You go, girl. I'm all about encouragement. But encouragement has to do something with our guilt. Another way we deal with our guilt is through this idea that, you know what, I just got to do more. I got to do more. You know, the wor- it's interesting. The world has always, forever, literally since Genesis 3, has been a broken, terrible, cruel, awful place. But now with the internet, we know about every tragedy and every problem and every evil in an instant. And we can watch and we can hear and we can read about all of these things. And when we do, we can't help but feel a sense of culpability. And so we feel like we must instantly speak to the issue. We must feel that we are compelled to to do something, that we've got to act, we've got to speak, we've got to do something, even though this issue happened 100 miles away from us. That if we don't act, if we don't respond, if we don't post, if we don't do something, we are complicit and just as guilty. So we've got to act. Another way we try to deal with our guilt is just like Adam. We try to blame shift and point the finger at someone else. We we do it by showing they're, they're more guilty than me. They're more bad than me. Look at them. Don't look at me. Look at them. We can sometimes do this in the quiet of our own heart, right? We we compare ourselves to other people and we'll, you know, I know i got my own issues, but I ain't like them. You know what I'm saying? We can do that. 
Or we can do it by posting and yelling and pointing the finger at, look how bad they are. Look at all the isms and all the things. Look at how they are. Let's cancel them because of this failing or this misdeed to show how righteous we are by canceling or getting rid or pointing the finger at them. I saw this up close the other day in my neighborhood HOA page. And y'all know, if you are an HOA or have a neighborhood Facebook page, it is the place for drama. <laughs> if you want to find drama, go there. Well, my, the, it was a couple weeks ago when that big storm had come through. And one of the things you got to know about my neighborhood is, like, if the wind just kind of blows a little bit, like, the power will go out. It's like, we don't have power lines. They're under the ground. But somehow, it's windy and the power goes out. And so, it's always a big thing on our thing. You know, everybody's talking about, oh, I hope the power doesn't go out. Well, this one lady, uh, you know, got on and her, the power was kind of flickering and she just posted in our, in our neighborhood page, man, really hope we don't lose power. It's starting to flicker. Hope it doesn't happen again. And unbeknownst to her, at the same time or sometime around when she posted, a tornado came through and wiped out Goshen. And... In came the comments. How selfish of you to be concerned about your power while a tornado was ruining people's lives. How uncaring of you that you're worried about your own, own power and electricity while it was, this tornado was destroying people's homes. And she was ripped to shreds for caring about this, even though she didn't even know about the tornado. And she was so excoriated, it felt so bad, that she felt compelled to issue a public apology over her concern that our power might go out. It is this sort of righteous indignation, this sort of gotcha, this sort of pointing in the finger. See, look how awful they are. Look how bad they are that our culture is thriving on right now. And deep down, I think it is in an effort to rid ourselves of guilt. So that we might look like the good people because those over there are the bad people. Social media is a shouting match where everyone's trying to prove that they are the righteous one and everyone else is the bad one. Think of all the phobias, all the isms, homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, xenophobia, and on and on and on. And we're all these things, you're these things. The world is really good at telling us how guilty we are, how bad we are, but they do not have an answer for what we are supposed to do with our badness or our guilt. The world is really good at pointing the finger, telling us how bad and how guilty we are, but they do not have an answer. For what am I supposed to do with my guilt and my badness? The world is right, or half right. We are bad. We are guilty. But where they do not have an answer for our guilt and what to do with it, we do. At the heart of the gospel, we find that the answer is not in ignoring our guilt. The answer is not in thinking positively about our life to expunge our guilt. The answer is not in working hard or speaking out against some issue to make ourselves righteous. The issue is not blame shifting or pointing the finger at others. No, at the heart of the gospel, we find that we must own our guilt, agree with our guilt, and look to the only Savior who can remove our guilt. At the heart of the gospel, we find what theologians call the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. It, it, and it is the only answer in the whole world that can remove our guilt and actually make us righteous. Can actually make us righteous. We need the doctrine of justification because it is better than anything the world has to offer when it comes to removing our guilt and making us righteous. So we're going to look at the doctrine of justification. 
see how it changes our lives? What do we believe about it on paper? And how should that impact our lives so we can close the gap between what we believe and how we live as it pertains to this doctrine? So, justification. The Greek word for righteous is the Greek word dikaios. Now, when you turn that noun into a verb, it becomes dikaiosune. Now, why does that matter? Because we don't translate the verb form of the noun righteous. We don't translate it be made righteous or to make righteous. We translate it justify, justification. Justification is the act of making one righteous. It is the verb form of the noun righteous. It is to make one righteous. In order to make someone righteous, we're going to see that two things have to happen. Two things have to happen. Their sin and their guilt must be taken away, but they have to produce or be given or somehow obtain righteousness. So number one, justification removes my sin and guilt. Justification removes my sin and my guilt. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or are made righteous. By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, big word, weird word, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does it mean that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation? Well, let me tell you a story to illustrate. Neil was in his early 20s when he began dating this girl named Sally that he met at the office. And he had a reputation for being a little bit on the wild side, but Sally wanted to give him a chance. And there were times when Sally got a little uncomfortable with him. And one night, uh, Neil and Sally took, uh, they went to this party and things got a little, a little out of hand. Neil began drinking a lot. And by the time they drove home in the early hours of the morning, he was scarcely able to control the car when the unthinkable happened. Neil hit the bank, lost control of the car. It flipped and rolled over several times, and when the vehicle came to rest, both Neil and Sally were unconscious. Several hours later, Neil came around in the hospital. His head was thumping and his body ached as he tried to remember what happened. And when the doctors came in, he asked, how is Sally, how is she doing, is she okay? And the doctor says, it's bad news, she's paralyzed from the waist down and she will never walk again. His heart crumbled, and he says, can I see her, can I see her, can I go be with her? And he said, no, she doesn't want to talk to you. Sometime later, Neil received a letter from Sally's lawyer. In the light of her permanent disability, Sally was bringing legal action against Neil for her being paralyzed. Neil wonders, how could he have been such a fool? How? It was just one night, but it changed everything. Neil doesn't know how to live with himself. He doesn't know what to do. He has no idea what to do to make it right. In this story, there are three factors. There is an offense, an irresponsible action that leads to physical ailment. There's an offense. Second, there's an offended person. Sally is angry, and rightly so. She's been hurt. She's been offended. And third, there is an offender. Neil knows he is to blame. He's deeply sorry for what he's done, but it doesn't matter how sorry he is. His sorriness will not change the fact that Sally is paralyzed and that her lawyers are preparing legal action against him. So what happens? Well, Neil hires a lawyer, and his lawyer talks to Sally's lawyer about what will it take to make it right. What will it take to settle the case? Their discussions center on one issue, 
What will satisfy Sally? What will bring justice? What Neil thinks will satisfy doesn't really matter. How much money Neil thinks it should take to satisfy her, to bring justice, to settle the account doesn't matter. It's about what Sally thinks because she's the offended party. Suppose that the lawyers identify a particular sum of money that would be acceptable to Sally. The payment of that money would be, that word we just read, the propitiation that settles the case. A propitiation is a payment offered to placate the anger of the offended party, to satisfy the justice and settle the case. So let's apply this to us. Since our sin is an offense against God, it follows that God is the one who determines what the propitiation should be. What it will take to settle the account, to settle the case and bring justice. And the question then for us is, what will satisfy God? What will satisfy him? What will placate his anger? We may have our ideas at at what it should be, at what the cost should be, what should resolve it. But what we think should make it right is irrelevant because God is the offended party. So we must answer the question, what will satisfy God? Justice must be served. And the only way to save us from the rightful justice of God is for their to be justice, and the only way for us to do that is one of two things. Either we pay for it or someone pays for it in our stead. Either we pay it or there's a substitute. See, Jesus comes to be that substitute. Jesus comes to take our place, to be himself the propitiation, to be the payment who stands in front of his own bullet, takes his own anger upon himself. Jesus on the cross takes everything that we deserve, takes the vengeance of God, the wrath and anger of God, and to placate God, he takes it upon himself. Theologians call this penal substitution. Penal substitution, that there is a penalty substitute. That God is offended, we are the offender, our sin is the offense, and Jesus is the payment or the substitute that satisfies God. So when Jesus is on the cross... When he is hanging there, being beaten and dripped with blood, suffocating on his own blood, he is paying the penalty for all of our sin. An innocent, spotless, perfect, blameless lamb. He's taking your past sins, your present sins, and the sins you have not even yet committed on himself, bearing in his own body the payment to satisfy the justice of the offended party God. Here is a helpful phrase to remember what is happening in this first aspect of justification called penal substitution. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. When we are justified before God, God looks at us just as if I had never sinned. He looks at me as if I had never ever sinned in my whole life. When you come to Christ and you place your faith and trust in him, in the cross and in the resurrection, your sin goes to Jesus on the cross. Your sin goes to Jesus, and so now you stand before God as innocent, just as if you had never sinned. But that's only half the equation. That is only half of what we need to be right with God. To deal with our guilt and to be made righteous, our sin made us have a negative balance, right? We went, like, using a credit card. You you go in the negative, right? You are now in debt. You owe. And forgiveness brings us back to zero. It cancels the debt. It brings us to zero. But Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount 
that it is the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God. Not the forgiven, not those who have a zero account balance, not those who have just had their sins removed. It is the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God. So the question is, how do we get that positive righteousness in our account? We've had all the sin removed, but how do we get righteousness? Because the Bible tells us that our, our best works are filthy rags in Isaiah, our filthy rags before him. Literally translated, minstrel rags. That's how filthy. All right, that's the Hebrew for you. That's your best works, minstrel rags. So how, if that, our filthy rags isn't going to get us positive righteousness. So how do we get positive? We've been forgiven. We've been brought to zero. But how do we get positive? Point two. Justification credits me righteousness. Justification credits me righteousness. Look at Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. When we come to Jesus by faith, we don't just receive forgiveness, we receive the active righteousness of Jesus. Jesus came and he lived a human life and he never sinned. He lived perfectly and that matters not so that he could just be a spotless, blameless lamb. He needed it for that. But he also had to live perfectly righteous so that his life could be credited to us. So that his righteousness could be given to us. So that we could stand on his coattails. So we could stand as if everything that Jesus did, we did ourselves. So that we could stand as and say that the devil tempted us in the wilderness for 30 days. And we never sinned. So that we can say, we always obeyed our parents. We never lusted. We were never greedy. We never lied. We never had an angry thought. Because Jesus did for us. Do you remember in school when you took a test and you found out to your glorious surprise that the teacher was going to grade it on a curve? And you were like, thank you, Jesus. For the curve. And your D bumps up to a C or maybe a B, depending on how bad the best person did, right? Because they, whatever, y'all know how curves work. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't take your whatever and say, well, you know what, we'll take the best of of the worst and we'll round them up and we'll round you up with them. He doesn't grade on a curve, but even if he did, it wouldn't be enough. Instead, what God does, he doesn't grade on a curve. Instead, he trades tests with us. That's what imputed righteousness is. Jesus aced the test. He got a 100. You got a stinking F. And he says, I'll take your F. You get my 100%. I want to trade tests with you. I will take the consequences of the F. You will, get the cons- you will get what comes to you for having scored perfectly. He completely trades with us. He's our substitute. He trades places with us. So how do you remember imputed righteousness? Justification is not just as if I'd never sinned, but it is also just as if I'd always obeyed. It is just as if I'd always obeyed. When you trust in Christ, not only does God see you as someone who has been forgiven of their sins, he sees you as someone who has always obeyed him perfectly. He sees you through the lens of Jesus as if you were him. So now, God sees you. Blameless, faultless, righteous. Now you've gone from negative to zero and from zero to positive. We call these two aspects double imputation. My sin to Jesus, his righteousness to me. 
We have much more than just forgiveness in the gospel. We have righteousness that comes to us by faith. So let's talk about faith for a moment. Point three, we receive justification through faith. That word through, you're like, why, why is the blank through? Shouldn't the blank be faith? No, the blank is through. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. I want you to understand, when you put your faith in Christ, your faith is not a commodity that we have that is so valuable that we can exchange it with God, that it's worth something, that God's like, yeah, man, let me get some of that faith, and he'll take that faith and give us righteousness in its place. It's not that our faith is so valuable that it's worth salvation on the open market, and we can exchange it, we can trade. Rather, faith is the instrument that God uses to grant us salvation. It comes through it. When I was about 13 years old and still an idiot, as 13-year-olds often are, we, the pond that we fished in growing up froze over. And so we thought, man, we should see if we can walk across it in North Carolina where it doesn't get that cold. And so what do we do? We walk up to the edge and you kind of start pushing on it. Like, well, that's the edge. It, it's not that frozen. Right? I got to get a little bit out. Right? And so you, you put, oh, that's, that's holding some weight. Right? And then you start throwing some rocks and some big, get some boulders and throw them out there and Hey, they're holding up pretty good. All right, hey, get the littlest guy and send him out there first. All right, you got it, man, come on. And it holds him up, and so what do we do? All right, we get out there and kind of, you know, cautious at first, and then you're like, man, stuff's holding. Walk across and like, hey, man, we can we can play out here. And you can't, We didn't have skates, you know, pretend to skate around, right? Right, jump up and down, play. We did something really stupid, started throwing rocks at each other on the ice, trying to bust the ice like that was a good idea. (laughs) 13-year-olds are idiots. Sorry. You're not, just me. But here's the question. Why did the ice hold us up? Was it our ability to balance really well on the ice? Was it our ability to jump on the ice that made it hold us up? Was it our bravery that made the ice hold us up? Was it our faith and trust that the ice would hold us up that enabled the ice to hold us up? No, of course not. The ice held us up because it was thick enough to hold our weight. The ice was strong enough in spite of anything that we did or believed or thought. In the same way, your faith is not what saves you. It is not what holds you up and delivers you righteousness. It is but our empty hands that we bring and extend to God whereby he saves us. Faith is the instrument God chooses to do, use to do the saving. Faith is not, it's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. It is Jesus who lived, Jesus who died a substitutionary death, Jesus who was raised from the dead. It was the Father who sent him, and it was we who come with empty hands, bringing nothing but meager faith, worth nothing, which he exchanges to lavish grace and mercy upon us. Why does he hold us up? Not because your faith is so valuable, but because he is so strong to hold you up. And he is so strong and able to deliver salvation to you. Faith requires three things. It requires knowledge, mental agreement, and trust. So, for example, I can believe, I can have the knowledge of what a stool is. I can know in my head, oh, stools have, you know, three to four legs. They have a 
a top. You can sit on there, some bracing. Okay, that's what a stool is, and it's made for sitting. And I can look at this and go, huh, it's got four legs, it's got some bracing, got a top. I, I have mental, uh, you know, I know what a stool is mentally, and now I'm agreeing, this, this is a stool. But then the final aspect is I have to trust it, and I have to sit on it and trust that it's going to hold me. Faith requires all three of those things. We have to have an understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. And we've got to agree that he has saved us. He has raised from the dead. These things are true. I believe that he has saved us and what that looks like. And then I've got to put my trust in it. I can't just know that it's true. I can't just agree that it's true. I've got to trust it. I didn't build the chair. I didn't invent the idea of a chair. I chose to sit in the chair and trust that it would hold me up. But it was the chair that holds me up, not my trust in the chair. In the same way, we don't invent salvation. We don't accomplish salvation. We just bring our little faith, and it's not our faith that holds us up or saves us. It's Christ, the object of our faith, that holds us up and saves us. That is justification by or through faith alone, double imputation, my sin to Christ, his righteousness to me, by faith alone, through faith alone. So, this is the doctrine on which... Christianity is built. The Protestant Reformation is built upon. So how should this change my everyday life? Like this matters that we believe it rightly, yes. But it also, how does it change my life? What, is it, what should it produce in me? A few things. Justification should produce humility. It should produce humility. The doctrine of justification forces us to confront the reality of how messed up we are. How broken we are, how our inability to fix ourselves and restore ourselves to any semblance of what we were meant to be. It is like we stand in front of a decayed and broken down house with no understanding of how to restore the house to its former beauty and no tools to do it. Just as sin has destroyed and decayed every aspect of our lives, we hold no ability to fix ourselves. We need God to come and do the work. The doctrine of justification, rightly understood, destroys the ideas of self-glory, destroys the idea of pride. It removes the thoughts in your mind that you've done something to deserve this gift. You should walk away from this doctrine humbled that God would love you and save you and bring you into his family. It should kill our pride and our arrogance. Two, justification produces gratitude. Sin naturally makes us self-centered. Sin makes us self-focused and self-absorbed. Paul reminds us that Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves in 2 Corinthians 5. He's come that we would no longer live for ourselves. One of the fruits of justification is this idea of gratitude, that there is this deep, whole life sort of gratitude. Not gratitude based on if my day is going well or because I'm healthy or because I'm successful in this season. No, this sort of gratitude from justification leads to a gratitude that transcends human situations. It is not weakened by difficulty. It does not rise and fall based on how life is going at that particular moment. The gratitude of being made right before God, this gratitude of justification, has, when, it, when it's gripped you, it looks like you waking up in the morning and thinking, you know what, my marriage is not all that it could be. And even though I have concerns about my children and sometimes I'm concerned about my finances, they worry me, I know deep in my bones that I'm going to be okay because I'm completely forgiven unfailingly and eternally loved 
because so much has been sacrificed for me by Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, I can be filled with gratitude and it shapes me to not be worried and stressed about these things, but trust that God's got me. Gratitude is this beautiful thing because it sets you free. And it happens when you understand that you are what you are, not because what you have done, but what has been done for you. When you learn that the richest things in your life are not there because you are an achiever, but because you're a receiver, it changes. This sort of gratitude in your life leads to contentment and joy and peace and a full life of rest. But when you don't have gratitude based on this gospel, God's love for you, then you become a complainer. You become unsympathetic. You become quick-tempered and easily irritable, impatient, and you live a dreary life. People who are grateful and are are generous and are kind and self-sacrificing, people who don't know this sort of gratitude are unkind and selfish. Three, justification produces freedom. So often as Christians live, we live as if we're still trying to earn our way to God. Like we, we understand we've had faith and we've been saved and we believe, but sometimes we still walk and live, as, like walk on eggshells like before God. Like, man, you know what, I'm, this sin or this next mistake, maybe God's going to have enough with me. And maybe God's going to, you know, undo the salvation thing. He's going to send me to hell or he's going to take it back or he's not going to love me anymore because I failed too much. But in justification, we have been forgiven of everything past, present, and future. We've been given righteousness through Christ and are eternally secure. We've been set free from trying to achieve righteousness through our obedience. My wife said this the best a few weeks ago when we talked about adoption, I think. It's gripped me ever since. That when adopted children come into someone's home, they have all these new privileges, right? They've got access. They've got things they've never had before. But they have to choose to tap into those benefits. They can either choose to live as a member of that family and enjoy those benefits, or they can choose to live as a member of that family and, re- and not have any of those benefits. All the love and the prosperity and the joy offered in that family. And instead, they can rebel and act out and miss out. And the same is true for us. We can obey and follow Jesus and give him our whole lives and enjoy the fruit of those benefits of the new life that Jesus offers. We can have all the joy and all the things by giving our life away to Jesus and receiving so much more in return. Or we can stagger through. We can sin and mess up and give our half-hearted obedience. And we can not be afraid of losing our salvation, but we also won't enjoy the fullness of what Jesus has offered. We are free. We are free. So our obedience to Jesus is not out of duty that we have to do it or else. Our obedience to Jesus is out of delight for what he has done. And those are completely different things. Religion says, do this or else. Do this and get to God. Christianity says, God has come to you and he's done all the work. So respond appropriately. Four, justification produces a new identity. Often our struggle in life, so many of our our problems in life, are tied to us trying to place our identity in something that is not big or strong enough to hold us up. And we think that if my identity can be in this thing, it will give me the joy I've always longed for. And so we place our identity in marriages. We place our identity in being parents. 
We place it in being ball players or the parents of good athletes. We place our identity in being popular or wealthy or successful. Or we place our identity in our trauma, in our hurt, in our pain. We place our identity in our sexual orientation or any of those types of things. But none of those things are big enough to be your identity. They will not hold you up. They will only leave you wanting more. They cannot define you. The doctrine of justification tells us that we place our identity not in small passing things, but in being fully righteous, beloved, wanted, children of God. It is an identity that will never fail you. It will never come up short. It will never let you down. It will never not be enough. It will never change or become outdated. It will keep you from running from job to job, from relationship to relationship, from house to house, car to car, church to church, looking for identity. It will secure you so that you are no longer defined by your past by your actions, no longer defined what you've done or what's been done to you, but known by the love and the sacrifice God has for you. That is an identity that will hold you up and change your life. Justification, number, the next one, justification produces a defense. I started talking, out, talking at the beginning about how the world is awash in guilt and about how we are all told about how bad we are but never told what we can do with our badness. The world is just mimicking the work of their father, the devil, because that is exactly what he loves to do. The Bible calls the devil two primary things. One, it calls him the accuser, and the second calls him a roaring lion searching for someone to devour. Spiritual warfare is raging all around us. And Satan has, in my determination, two primary attacks against us. He comes to us in our sin and our failure, and he says, See, you can't live up to what God has called you to. See, you are a failure. See, there's no way God could love you like this. You better keep it a secret, because if they find out, they won't love you either, and especially God won't love you. We hear these whispers all the time, but justification gives us a defense against the evil one. The defense is not, you're wrong, Satan, I am good enough. That's not it. It's not, you're wrong, Satan, I can be better. I can try harder. I can do better tomorrow. That's not the answer. The answer is, Satan, you're kind of right. I'm not good enough. You're kind of right. I'm a screw-up and a failure. But the blood of Jesus covers me from head to toe. He lavishes grace upon me. And at the cross, he said, it is finished. And at the resurrection, God has said, sacrifice accepted. And so I'm completely forgiven. So get out of my face. The other thing Satan does is he comes to us in our pain and in our suffering and our hurt and in our trials. And he says, well, where's your God now? Where's your God now? I thought he loved you. I thought if he loved you, he wouldn't really let this happen to you, would he? Would he really let this happen to you? It looks to me like God's abandoned you or like he just simply doesn't care. Because if he did care, he wouldn't let this happen to you. Maybe he's abandoned you. And maybe he's not real. Or maybe he doesn't have the power to help you after all. Or maybe he doesn't care. Our defense against this is also justification, as Romans 8 reminds us. Because of the cross, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. 
Remember that whole list in Romans 8? Neither height nor depth nor uh, things, to come, things present, things to come. Nothing in all of creation. No difficulty in life. No suffering, no trial, no pain. Can ever separate us from the love of God. So we can fight these lies by reminding ourselves that if God has given us his son, will he not also with him give us all things? Romans 8. Difficulty in life is never a sign of God's abandoning you. Instead, they are, they, they, those difficulties become tools of redeeming love in the Father's hands. God is using every trial to refine you, make you beautiful, and make you whole. And in the end, C.S. Lewis says it the best, every agony will be turned into glory. Finally, justification produces security. Before the Protestant Reformation, people lived in fear of whether or not they were going to make it to heaven. They lived in fear that their past loved ones that have gone on and died, that they were suffering in purgatory because they were not good enough. And so the church told them that if they bought these indulgences, if they gave money to the church, they could buy a certificate to get some years off their sentence in purgatory. And so uh, a, a coin in the coffer uh, spring, rings a soul from t- purgatory springs. And so I'll give some money to the church and I'll get a thousand years off purgatory for my mom who's passed. In Islam and many other religions, you only make it to heaven if you do good, more good than bad. If the scales of your life, they got to be like this, you know, just a little bit more good than bad. Or like the sitcom, The Good Place. That in the end, you have a number attached to you, a number. Have you been more good than bad? And if that number's in the green, you make it to the good place. And if not, you go to the bad place. And as they find out, not really a middle place you get to go to. I don't know about you, but that not only sucks, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. To th- if that were true, right, that, that none of us could keep a ledger, right, of all of our good works. I lied today, but I also, like, helped an old lady cross the road. Uh, you know, I, I, I looked at something on my computer I shouldn't have, but you know what? I was really kind to my wife. Right, we can't keep this ledger of, 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 of our good works. And so if, if that was true, we'd get to the end of our life and we wouldn't know. Was I good? Was I better? That would lead to fear and anxiety and depression and stress. Justification teaches us that we could never be good enough, no matter how hard we tried, but that we can rest, and that we can rest in the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to second-guess our life. We don't have to be depressed. We can rest. We can have security. We can sleep soundly at night, knowing that when our last breath comes, we will be met by our Savior who will look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because Jesus' blood covers us. One of the questions I get a lot or hear people teach on a lot is they'll say, Brent, if I commit a sin and then get hit by a car and don't have time to ask for forgiveness between sinning and getting hit by the car and I die, will I still go to heaven? And I've actually heard people teach on this and say, you know what, you better confess all the time and ask for forgiveness all the time because you might walk out there and get hit by an asteroid or a car and if you didn't ask for forgiveness, you're not going to make it. And that's silliness. That's stupid. Because Jesus has forgiven us of everything, past, present, and future. He's atoned and covered all of our sins before we've even confessed them. That's not even how the gospel works. The gospel covers all of us. And so if you sin a million times and you've not confessed him and you get hit by a car and die, guess what? If you're in Christ, you're going to meet your Savior. And he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because you were so great, 
but because he was. Because of this, you are incredibly secure. You can rest. You can take a deep breath and chill out. Because Jesus has you in his hand. And no matter how hard you squirm, he'll never let you go. Not even you can screw it up. There are some of you in this room right now, and you do not know, and you have not experienced the sweet, justifying grace and love of God. You have thought, maybe for you it's too late. You have thought, maybe for you you're too unworthy. You have thought, you know what, I've, I want it, but i got to clean some stuff up first. got to get my life situated and right, and then maybe I'll be interested. And all of those things are lies from the enemy to keep you away from the life-changing grace that God offers. A clean slate every day, every moment, a new clean slate. A new family that God is offering you. This morning as we sing, if you have never experienced, never known a way to take away your guilt and shame. As we sing, I'm going to stand right there. Come up and say, Brown, I want to know how. And I'll show you how you get it for free. Others of you in this room. You know this doctrine, you've believed this doctrine, but you're not living out this doctrine. You've not lived in peace and security. You've believed the lies of the devil that you're not good enough and and it's destroyed your soul. You haven't been humble, you haven't been grateful, you've been quick to speak, you've been a grumpy, rude, miserable person to be around. You haven't experienced the freedom Jesus offers. Well, if you belong to God, it's time to close this gap. It's time to practice what justification leads us to, what rescuing leads us to. And if that's you this morning and you want to pray and you just say, Brent, I need you to pray for me. I need to, I need to work through these things. Whatever, you want to pray about anything, I'm going to stand right here. I'd love to pray with you. I'd be honored to pray with you. Let's sing. Let's, let's pray. Father, this morning, we're reminded that your love and kindness and grace knows no bounds. We know that you don't look to us for to to bring something so worthy to you that we might exchange for salvation. We don't have to bring a sacrifice or an offering or or faith that's so good, so pure, so big that you would exchange it for salvation. Rather, we come with empty hands and broken hearts and broken lives. And you do the rest. You do the rest. You make all the changes. You do all the saving. You remove all the guilt, all the shame. And you make us whole. And so, God, this morning, if there's anyone in this room who's not experienced a life-changing work of justification through the gospel to Jesus, God, give them the courage and the bravery to step up and come up here this morning and talk with me as we sing so how they can be made new. And if there's anyone in this room, Father, there are many of us in this room, and we have not lived this out, and we are struggling with some aspect of this, whether it be the humility or the security, the peace, whatever else, God, give them the courage to apply this and to live this out. If they need to pray, give them the courage to come pray. If they need to stand, sing, give them the courage to sing a little louder. Say, Jesus, let me give all of myself to you. God, help us to respond the way we need to. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand and sing.